Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I am your host, Elias Ayala, and today uh, I have a very special guest on with us to discuss uh, another application of presuppositional apologetics. Today we're going to be looking at the biblical foundation for uh, presuppositional apologetics. If you're wondering why I'm out of breath, <laughs> my my kids are upstairs, and, and at the last second, right before we were going to get started, uh, my son needed water, and so I had to run up the stairs, run back down, so I'm out of shape. Whew. So hopefully I will survive uh, and not pass out in the midst of, uh, of this interview. Uh, just real quick, by, by way of uh, some quick announcements, I have some really exciting interviews coming up as well to discuss other aspects of presuppositional thought. Uh, today, of course, we have uh, Pastor Doug Wilson. On the 29th, we have uh, Jeff Durbin coming on to discuss um, how to apply presuppositional apologetics to competing religious perspectives. Uh, we also have Dr. James Anderson coming on on May 9th to talk about uh, the nature of transcendental arguments and the different ways you can apply uh, those sorts of argumentation within a presuppositional framework. We also have Dr. Gary Habermas coming on on uh, May 12th and Douglas Gruthius on May 15th. So we have a really great lineup um, as you uh, probably uh, recognize, uh, some of those guys I just mentioned are not presuppositionalists, but um, as I have expressed before in um, past uh, episodes, I really want to build bridges and show that we can very, very much appreciate the work that's being done uh, within the whole scope of uh, of the Christian church with regards to defending the faith. And so um, we can appreciate uh, people who are coming from other apologetic methodologies, even though we, we disagree uh, maybe with the foundation from where they're coming from. Um, but again, this is an in-house discussion, and I think we can engage in those internal discussions and debates with gentleness and respect, as 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 tells us, with regards to giving an answer for the hope that's in us. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today. Uh, we have today Pastor Doug Wilson. Welcome. Uh, you me to, can I call you Doug Wilson? Yeah. Pastor, how would you yeah, like yeah. to be called? Hey, hey, you. Uh, Doug is fine. <laughs> the, the bearded man. Uh, well, I'll just call you the bearded man. That'll be uh, that'll be how I'll, I'll address you. That'd be really awkward for this interview if I did that. Yeah. But um, I, I'm very excited that you're on. I greatly appreciate uh, the work that you've done in apologetics. I know you're a pastor, and so your your job goes way beyond just what a lot of people see on the internet and what you've done with regards to debates and things like that. Why don't you tell a little bit um, about yourself for people who might not know who you are? And um, maybe you can share with us a little bit of your experience and background in apologetics, and then we'll start with our discussion. All right. Well, my name is Douglas Wilson. I'm a pastor in Moscow, Idaho. If you don't know where that is, it's Iowa. It's in Idaho. And we're in the uh, Idaho has a panhandle, and we're up in the chimney, up in the panhandle of Idaho. Um, we're about as far away from the potatoes as we are from Seattle. Uh, so this is logging and mining country. Um, very beautiful, very beautiful part of the country. It's called the Palouse. So I've been here a pastor for over 40 years. I came here to go to school. My folks had moved here. Uh, I helped them move here, and then I went in the Navy. And after a stint in the submarine service, I came to the University of Idaho here in Moscow and got my uh, bachelor's and master's in philosophy. And I did that because my father ran a, um, a, a, an evangelistic Christian bookstore. Uh, that's why he came to Moscow to open one of those. He did that in Pullman, Washington, which is just eight miles away. And um, Moscow here, 
there's a university in each one. And plan was to study philosophy and do what my dad was doing. I was going to go to another small town with a with a major university in it, open an evangelistic apolog slash apologetic bookstore, and um, and run it as a ministry to college students. That that was the plan. That got derailed. Uh, so I've always been interested in apologetics and engaging with non-believers, and uh, I did a lot of uh, that when I was in the Navy, and I was studying philosophy after I read a little bit of Francis Schaeffer in the Navy, and I got interested in uh, a thinking Christian response to the challenges of unbelief. So that's why I studied philosophy. And uh, I sort of got pulled through the hedge backwards into the ministry. Uh, I was while I was doing my uh, undergraduate work, um, I was I played the guitar. I was a song leader for a little Jesus people type of um, fellowship that w that was that was planned here. Did you have a, did you have and, a mullet? Oh, I didn't have a mullet, but I I I was more of a hair farmer than I am now. I, Longer beard and yeah, I, I fit into the seventies. Let's just say I fit it in. Um, so um, and uh, we were the church plant. This little Jesus People Fellowship was about a year and a half into it when the man who was doing the preaching announced one Sunday that he had gotten a job in another town, another city, and he was going to be moving and he was going to be gone the next Sunday and and so that's how I. Uh, that's how I wound up. Uh, I preached the next Sunday and have been preaching to these long-suffering saints uh, ever since. So after, uh, uh, so the ministry side of it, the pastoral side of it started up, but this is a university town. So very early on, we would schedule debates with various forms and various kinds of unbelievers, some atheists. I, uh, I've debated uh, Gordon Stein, who... Um, shortly after uh, his famous, infamous uh, debate with Greg Bonson, um, it would that was a that was a surreal experience. I can tell you, because uh, you know, I debated Gordon Stein. I in my opening uh, statement, I laid out a basic, classic presuppositional argument, and. Stein, who had just been through the mill with uh, with Greg Bonson, acted like he'd never heard of you know never heard any of this stuff before, and said, "Well, I'm I'm glad that Wilson isn't going to appeal to the classical uh, arguments for God's existence, and this is what I would have said if he had." <laughs> so, so he he just debated an imaginary you know it, he. Sure. So, and I've, I've debated uh, Dan Barker a few times and other, uh, Edward Tabosh. And so I've, I've I had um, uh, a number of debate encounters with mostly atheists. And uh, the most um, significant apologetic encounter I had was with the late Christopher Hitchens when um, he and I debated online uh, at, at Christianity Today. And then that was released as a book. And then that book release uh, tour that we did together was turned into a documentary collision. So the, if people associate me with apologetics, it's probably because of collision. 
Yeah. The first time I ever heard of you was in your debate with uh, Dan Barker. And I think that might have been one of the first times I heard about Dr. Bonson because the, the person introducing you mentioned that Dan Barker was scheduled to debate Dr. Bonson, who passed away, the, I think it was a year before. Is that correct? Yeah. So it was right around that. I don't remember the exact chronology, yeah. but yes. Did, did you ever get to meet Dr. Bonson at all? Yes, I met him one time. I, uh, he and I spoke at a, a a Christian worldview conference. Well, it wasn't the, for the young people, but it was a we did a conference together in um, Delaware or Maryland, somewhere somewhere in there, and um, and was privileged to meet him and uh, enjoyed enjoyed that. All right, very good. Well, um, I've never, I never knew that you debated Dr. Gordon Stein. Is that audio available anywhere? No. Well, part of his uh, deal was no recordings, and you know he didn't want anything. He didn't want anything documented. documented. Okay. Well, that's no fun. <laughs> okay. No. All right. Well, let's, let's let's jump right into into things here. The main thing I wanted to, to talk about with you is the biblical foundation for apologetics. Last last episode, we had Dr. Michael Kruger on, and we talked a little bit about presuppositionalism applied to historical studies and issues in canon. And so we had a very interesting discussion with regards to how to understand evidence and history within a presuppositional framework. But I figured I'd have you on as a pastor. You're very much connected with kind of that biblical foundation. So perhaps you can lay out for us, um, as you see it, the biblical foundation for doing apologetics presuppositionally. And then perhaps we can dive into some of the more controversial passages that classicalists and, and presuppositionalists go back and forth on. Sure. Um, I would say that um, there, there are two ways to approach this um, this question, and I'm, I'm persuaded both ways, um, but let me just uh, lay them out. One would be the intellectual slash theological question. How do we stack these uh, uh, statements with truth value claims attached to them? How do we arrange them? What's the most foundational um, claim that's being made? You know, it, it's the intellectual or philosophical or theological problem how do you want to parse it okay that's that's, that's one uh, way to approach it and and I, i'm figuring that also but if if someone were to ask me what my my central biblical case for the presuppositional approach would be it would be tone okay okay and that has to do with certainty okay when i say certainty i i don't mean epistemic certainty, uh, as though a creature could have the kind of certainty that God has. That was the temptation. That was the, that was the aboriginal temptation. You shall be as God. So I always must know as a creature. But when you look at this, when you look at scriptural declarations, none of them, it's, it, the prophet comes out of the wilderness saying things like, thus saith the Lord. He doesn't come out of the wilderness saying, it seems to me, or I've been giving this a lot of consideration, or the people in my seminar group um, agree with me that this is a valuable question. Um, the, the biblical faith is declarative. I'm a preacher. I'm a herald. I announce things. And Peter says that the one who 
uh, preaches should preaches declaring the very oracles of God. Okay, um, so the thing that strikes me is that in much modern apologetic debate discussion, the thing that puts people off their puts people off on presuppositional uh, the presuppositional approach is that it sounds just way too cocky, <laughs> just way too confident. This is all this, there's, there's no there's no room for discussion here, fellows. This here it is, here it is. Bag. Okay. Um, now that's really interesting because I just um, I just finished today, as a matter of fact, uh, listening through again uh, Francis Schaeffer's uh, book. He is there and he's not silent. And this issue of tone came out, struck me, um, and that that was his, his basic statement: is it's Christ or nothing. You know, it's this is the only possible conceivable route. You've got to go this way, instead of saying this is the best available explanation out of seventeen. This is the one I prefer, and I think this one is prettier, prettier than the others. I think this is nicer than the others. Uh, now, and the reason I think this is important, uh, and this is probably the basic, the theological foundation of, of what I'm saying here. If, if you were to ask me, what is it to prove something? What, what it constitutes a proof? And I would say the thing that constitutes a proof is when you have obligated belief. Okay, when the person, if the person turns away and refuses to believe, that person is sinning. They're not making a mistake. They're rebelling. They're sinning. They've got something on conscience. Okay, so when when someone has something on their conscience, after I've laid out a, a, a declaration or preached a sermon or shown them evidences for Christ, if they turn away and they're to go into the, and this takes us the first, first kind of argument, to go into the posture of the unbeliever in Romans 1, where they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That means they've got something on their conscience. That means that this is a moral issue. Because if, if it were not possible to bring the apologetic endeavor into the realm of conscience, morality, and obligation to believe, then it's not, it will not be possible for God to judge the world. How can God judge the world if belief is not obligatory? Mm. You know, right? And it's only obligatory if the person knows. You know, if someone sure. knows that, if they know what the truth is, and they suppress it, then that is a moral failing. It's not. It's not like I'm. So apologetics ought not to be like trying to explain calculus to a second grader where they just don't have the, the framework to, to comprehend any of it. I'm explaining something to the unbeliever that Romans 1 tells me some level of his being, he already knows. He knows already. Okay, I'm right, not right there. If, if, you don't mind, if you don't mind me interrupting there. Okay, so this sure. is this is usually a point of contention uh, between the different perspectives out there, and it's this, the nature of the knowledge of God. You know, uh, what sort of knowledge of God does the unbeliever have? Is it is it an innate knowledge 
or is it or a immediate knowledge? It's kind of a look and see. Is it a little bit of both? And if so, if man has innate knowledge, what is the nature of that? Does he have innate knowledge of the triunity of God? Does he have an innate knowledge of kind of just a vague notion of divinity? What's the nature of that innate knowledge? Okay, that's. I think you've touched the thing with the needle, um, and this is the um, this is a sixty four thousand dollar question. And the way I would answer it is this: <laughs> He is he's suppressing knowledge of the true God. He's he's suppressing knowledge of the living God. He's suppressing knowledge of the God he doesn't win his life, because that God is going to mess everything up. Okay, now I don't believe that the non believer. Has and this is where I think Van Til maybe trips some people up. Where Van Til would say you can't make you can't form a coherent sentence without presupposing the triune triune God. Okay, um, okay. That does that does not mean that the non-believer has the Nicene Creed tattooed on the back of his brain, and he and he knows that that Nicene Creed. He knows what it means, and he knows everything it's saying, and he knows all the implications, and he's suppressing that. I would prefer to say that, that he's suppressing the knowledge of the living God, who is triune. And the non in, in order to uh, have that suppression be a moral failing, the, the person doing the suppressing has to know that this is the living God. It's not a phantom, not a fairy, not a not a construct. It's not a placeholder God. It's the the God who who lives, the God who's there. And so, in Romans one, I see a non-believer. Uh, if you imagine knowledge of the living God as an overinflated beach ball, and the non-believer is to hold the beach ball underwater, and he's trying to keep it there, and his arms are quivering. Because, because it's hard to keep that beach ball under there. The job of the apologist is to come up and poke his arms. You know, hey, ticket, ticket, ticket. So you stop it. And the reason he wants you to stop it is because there's going to be uh, a reckoning. And if there isn't a reckoning that he is suppressing, then he has a defense at the last day. It, it all boils down to this. Can the non-believer say, I honestly, honestly say, I didn't know it was you? I, I would well, say Romans 1 says he can't say that. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, so man, man is without excuse. Now, uh, someone, someone who I think has a good uh, knowledge in audio, he said, someone's asking me, ask Dr. Wilson... Uh, to put on his headphones. You, my output is going through his input. That might be the reason why there's echoing. I don't know if, if you have headphones or whatever. Well, that might be helpful. Uh, let me, if, if you excuse helpful. me. All right. All right. That's fine. No, go, go for it. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying this this discussion. Um, I'm trying really, really hard with the with the audio uh, issues going on. I'm not a really techie kind of guy. Uh, I'm not in my office, as you can see. Um, I kind of have a family issue that requires me to be uh, home at this moment, so I don't have everything okay. all set up and stuff. What did your, what did your viewer say? Uh, he said, uh, ask Dr. Wilson to put his headphones on because my output is going through your input. 
So let's see if that works at all. Okay. If we fix this, I might stop making sense. <laughs> okay. 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 I hear a little bit of my own echo, but we'll we'll see what happens. Let's see. Uh, maybe if I put my headphones. Oh, well, that on, sounds better to me already. Just bear with me, folks. <laughs> Does it? Okay. Let me see here. You control your volume down here. Okay. Thanks for being around. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I even have my headphones. Did you, did you say I sound much better? Yeah. How how do I do I sound better to you? Let me see if I could if I could uh look at this. You see, reformed people shop alike with regards to their headgear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me see. If, <laughs> let's see here. So I'm gonna turn my my AirPods on. Let's see if this works a little bit. Okay, he said yes, the echo is gone. Can you hear me? Cool, cool. I can. I can hear you. Can you hear me, uh, Okay, cool. I can. All right. So they said they're saying the echo is gone. So let's let's hope it's in fact gone. So, all right. So what I was going to ask before was uh, with regards to the knowledge of God. You said that He knows the true God. Now this is an epistemological issue because I do understand that you most likely understand that the nature of the Triune God is necessary, uh, necessarily connected to the epistemological issue. In other words, man naturally thinks in one and many categories. You, you understand? Right. Now, yeah. if he doesn't presuppose the Trinity, right, he has no knowledge of the Trinity, can he justify any of his claims given that oneness and manyness that he's functioning in necessarily must be grounded in the triune God? So does he know that God is triune? If not, in what sense does he know God, and does he have justification for the things that he knows? Right. So I say the way I would answer that is that he must presuppose the triune God in order to uh, deal with the one of many. He must presuppose it. The question mm -hmm. has to do with how conscious, how detailed and how conscious is that presupposing? Okay. Now, I'm what I'm maintaining is that it's conscious enough to be culpable. It's conscious enough that he has has no excuse. It's not so conscious that he could recite the Nicene Creed and say this is Trinitarian Christianity. Um, most Christians can't do that, right? Right. So the the fact that the fact that I'm presupposing the Triune God before I know the word word Trinity. Before I, you know, let's say I'm a three-gold Christian, and I'm praying to the Father in the name of Jesus, and I, I believe there's a Holy Spirit, but nobody sorted it out, it out for me. I'm supposing all of that, and I can't, I can't function, you know, I really can't function without presupposing that. And astute and refined thinkers, if you take Heraclitus and Parmenides. And they're pursuing the one and the many. They can't solve that problem. Given sophisticated analytical thinkers cannot solve those problems without appealing to the deity. Okay, the 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 same sort of thing with uh, Aristotle's unmoved mover and Plato's God that knows us, and Aristotle's God that doesn't know us. Um, 
they can't they can't they though there there can be no peace there can be no reconciliation between those positions mm-hmm. apart from a a, rec- a a direct recognition of the Trinity but you've got all sorts of rank and mm-hmm. file non Christians who presuppose the Trinity without consciously being able to pass even the most fundamental quiz on what the doctrine of the Trinity claims. Mm. Okay. So what All right, level so, of, uh, let's so where, so where are you supposing it? Yeah. Say, say that last part again. Uh, how much, how much self, self-conscious knowledge um, does it take okay. to call it a presupposition? I'm, I'm created in the image of God, and if I were a non-Christian, I would still be an image bearer. Well, well that image that I'm bearing is the image of a triune God. I, I can't run from the Trinity because it's, it's woven into the very fact of my being. Of, of course I have, have to presuppose the Trinity in order to think because I have to propose me in order, order to be able to think. And I can't presuppose me without presupposing someone made me the image of the triune God. Right. Now, this tends to also be connected to the whole issue of what a lot of classicalists will um, will criticize presuppositionalism for, and it's this confusion of ontology and epistemology. You know, that, that God right. is the, the triune God is the ontological grounding for knowledge, but is the assumption of, of the triune God a necessary precondition for knowledge? And so uh, the the classicalists will often say that they agree with the presuppositionalism, the presuppositionalist, yeah, yeah, God is the ontological grounding. But that doesn't mean man has to presuppose God in his thinking to acquire knowledge or have a justification for the things that he knows. Well, how would you address that issue? Do you think it's one or the other, or is it both? No, Do you think that the, uh, that the ontological grounding is God and that one must assume because he has knowledge, innate knowledge of God in order to have a justification for the things that he knows? No, I, I would say because, because we're finite thinkers in our theology departments or in our systematic theologies, we have, have one section okay. called ontology and another section called epistemology. But in the actual wor- world where, where people live, ontology and, and epistemology are all descriptions of the same world. The, 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 sure. fact that, the fact that I can make different philosophy departments, or I can say he studies epistemology and he studies ontology. Well, maybe they ought to get together and visit more. <laughs> maybe they ought to communicate more because these questions have something di- directly to do with one another. So uh, so the classical um, evidentialists will say, yeah, ontologically speaking, there's no world but the triune God because the triune God made it. But when we're speaking of epistemology, it's a different ballgame. Well, I would I would want to parse it further. Are we talking about the knower, the person who's knowing stuff, or are we talking about the 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 epistemology who is looking at our knowing stuff? Hmm. Which one are we talking about? So the man the the man who knows that that's a tree over there. Or knows that that's a park bench, or knows that uh, this is, is his wife and these are his kids. He can't know that at all unless he's he's a knower, and he can't be a knower unless he's created the image of God. But that doesn't mean that he is a student of epistemology. That just means means 
that he's he's assuming things he's never, he's never proven in order to know that, that that's his wife. Now, I would say a sophisticated student of epistemology who has pursued this with a bunch of, with the uh, refinement of Greek philosophy and has pursued it for 300 years is going to get to the point where he says, you know, that, that guy can't know that that's life without presupposing the triune God. And I think that would be true, right? I think it's yeah. so everything has to do with how self-conscious a presupposition is. Okay. How right, self-conscious so, is yeah. it? That, that's it. How, how yeah. self-conscious is it? How self-aware is it? Right. And so we would say that the knowledge that the, that everyone has, um, the, the natural man, for example, someone who doesn't have a Bible or anything like that, is a general, is a general knowledge, is general revelation. So would you say that general revelation, the general knowledge of the general revelation of God and the knowledge that man has innately of God, what is that? Is as presuppositionalists who affirm innate knowledge, would we back off from trying to gain specificity with regards to what that knowledge entails? Since perhaps we can't know biblically, we just know that he has enough of it that he's without excuse. How would you describe the right. nature of that knowledge in detail if it could be done? So, I, I the, the way I would illustrate it is uh, because knowledge is a very strange thing when you when you think about it. So, let's say. Um, let's say I, I walk, walk out of my office and I look down Main Street here, here in Moscow, and two blocks away, I see a little tiny figure, you know, a little tiny person, and, and I know instantly it's my wife. Now, how did I know that? And let's, let's say I walk down there, and sure enough, it's, I, didn't, I, I didn't recognize clothing. I didn't recognize it's, it's far away. But, but my ability to apprehend that that's my wife is something that is built in. God has um, wired us this way. Now, I believe that non-believers, when they're, they're running from God, are not run, running from the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not running from Allah. They're not running from Baal or Dagon. They're not running from any false constructs or any false gods. The fact they're running from the true God. The fact that they're running from the true, true God doesn't mean that they're close enough to see all the features. They just know enough to know that that's the God they don't want to deal with because that's the God who will, will deal with them. Right? It's sort of like Edmund in right. the line in which the wardrobe as soon as he hears Aslan's name, he knows he doesn't like it. Right? That. That, that's the uh, that's the kind of knowledge I'm talking about. It's instantaneous love or hatred, uh, attraction or revulsion. And for fallen man, it's always revulsion unless God is in the process of drawing that person. And that's what, made, that's what brings the culpability in. And that's why I think the apologist or the evangelist needs to be dogmatic, de- declarative pronouncing because he's saying to the people i'm telling you something the word of god says and in your heart what i'm saying resonates with what you know already it's like a it's like a tuning fork you hit the the tuning fork and and it's resonating with with what that person's heart knows and for them to reject that moment introduces culpability 
they're they're now mm. at that moment without excuse. Yeah, and it seems now, just to me that many of the, many of the on the other hand, I, if and I I, I want to play along with not play along with, but I want to co cooperate fully with your desire to, to have evidentialists and presuppositionalists learn learn to play nice and learn to have you know fruitful uh, interactions. But one of the things I've seen in many popular uh, evidential approaches is it seems to me to want, want to give the sinner too much wiggle room, too, too much room to maneuver. And I believe, believe that our responsibility is, is to give them no room to maneuver and they'll call them repentance. Right. And then I would... I and I would fully agree with that. And I think uh, another thing I like to emphasize is that when we appreciate what other people are doing within different apologetic traditions, that's not to say that we compromise on our own convictions as as Reformed Christians, as presuppositionalists, because um, I do believe that there is far too much wiggle room with the even just the wording as to many of these classicalists in debates, the wording that they uh that they use when presenting their case, I'm come thinking, I'm like, I can't imagine the apostle Paul phrasing the argument in that way, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Now, now with regards to, to Romans one, um, a lot of classical apologists use this to support a sort of natural theology. Why don't you tell folks what natural theology is and what you think with regards to Romans one, is it in fact supporting a natural theology? Uh, yeah, I, I'm as, I, I identify myself. I, I, I hesitate to say any more more that I identify as anything, but but I identify as a Vantillian. Right. So uh, I, I'm I'm means I'm nervous about um, certain expressions of natural law. Okay. And the expression uh, the the expression of natural law that I'm nervous about, about is the kind that wants to carve out autonomy, where people talk about. Uh, they can get around the idea of whether or not natural law would remain negatory, even if, if there were no uh, God. You know, can, can you have natural law in an atheistic universe? Hmm. Well, that that to me is like trying, trying to draw round squares. Um, the natural law means there's a lawgiver. Natural liberation, which is a phrase I'm much more comfortable with, is means that there's a revealer, some, someone who gives that information the heavens to declare the glory of god so i don't have any problem affirming that there is a a de declaration that god is making in the created order i have a problem with uh the created order serving as, as this nebulous fuzzy quarry from which the um the stonemasons of human thought can go out and carve their ideas I, I sure. don't. I don't think we go discover things uh, all by ourselves. I think God reveals. I think God tells. God. 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 God so you would hold to you would hold to a form of revelational epistemology. Yes, very much so. So, so I believe. Uh, so I believe that um, someone who's not yet encountered a Bible knows from the sun, moon, and stars that he is a creature. He knows that he is not. He knows that he is not the one who made all these things. He, okay. You know, uh, a, a fallen, finite man can know that he is not God, right? He must know that he is not God. 
Now, the way I illustrate it is, say, uh, two schoolboys come home to their uh, one of the boys' house, uh, houses, and the mother of that of one of the boys boys uh, took some brownies out of out of the oven and left them on the counter and left a note for the boys on the brownies, and she said. Um, uh, boys, I'd like you to help yourself. There's some milk in the fridge. and uh, But before you do that, I'd like you to carry this desk upstairs. Mm. Okay? And, and the two boys walk in uh, to the house, and the house is beautifully kept, and there's beautiful pictures on, on the walls. Uh, she's a wonderful housekeeper. The whole place is like brownies. And then there's a note on the, on the brownies. Right? <laughs> the house and the brownies are general revelation. Note is special revelation. Hmm. I like that. That's okay. really good. <laughs> That's okay. really good. Now, but there's only really one mom. There's okay. only so so the problem that this goes back to our. Uh, that's our really good. You're, yeah, that's really good. I never thought of it that way. That makes some. That makes so okay. So so you're saying the the brownies, the cookies, the hospitality, the 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 people who go to the house know this is. We, we can know something about the woman who lives here because she looked right. look at all the wonderful things she leaves out. Um, we could even see family portraits. So like, Oh look, maybe she wore, you know, or she has three kids right. or blah, blah. And then the special revelation would be more specific, a letter or, or even the, the woman coming out and saying, Hey, how's it going guys? Yeah, yeah. Ex okay. exactly. That's exactly it. The, the thing that I, uh, the thing I want to lean against or resist is our, because when we are talking about this, when we were talking about ontology and epistemology, uh, we just because we can give a name to two different disciplines doesn't mean that, that those disciplines are separated in the world. So, so in the real world, um, the God who the God who spoke and drama into existence, and the God who inspired Paul to write Galatians, is is the same God. So, so he's communicating to me one way in this. Uh, setting and he's, he's communicating to me another in another way in setting now the, the problem with natural theology is that people people want um, to separate the disciplines of let's study the let's study the book all by, by itself and let's study nature all by itself and then they come up with all kinds of uh, you know uh, fossil records and what the scientists say and this, they, they they misread the book because they've detached it, <laughs> they they go off off into the garage and eat all the brownies because <laughs> they refuse to read the note. <laughs> <laughs> that's really that's really good. I, I like the way you the way you did that there. Um, and I know the difference between these things, but the way you just put it there, I was like, eh, that actually is really good. It kind of uh, uh, makes the point very clearly there. Let's let's take some questions from people who are who are listening in. Um, some may be related to what we're talking about. Some may not be related. And so um, you know if 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 you want to answer a question, go for it. If there's a question that you think like, man, I don't know if I'm going to address that. You can just, you know, hand wave it away. No big deal. Uh, answer is 40, 42. That's right. Okay. So Anthony asks, I know it's off topic, but ask, uh, ask him, that's you, what his favorite memory of, of Hitchens was. I know, I, I assume you guys were somewhat friends. I don't know if you guys were close at all, but uh, what's yeah, your we, favorite we, memory? Um, I, I would say uh, in, you can get a glimpse of it in, uh, in Collision, there's a place, there's a, there's a part in the film where uh, we're at King, King's College in New York, and we got to, to we're both great, we're both great lovers of P.G. Woodhouse, 
and, and we got to quoting favorite lines from uh, from Wills back and forth to one another. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, what it boils down to is this. Christopher Hitchens was, was uh, uh, just really gracious to me in all of our interactions, except when we were on st stage. So when we were on st <laughs> when we were on stage, he would move into his his um, bad boy shtick. You know, he, he would okay. he would insult me and do th different things on stage. But uh, you know, if we'd have when we had breakfast together uh, in New York, just just the two of us visiting, and it was just a very ami amiable and good uh, conversation. So, so my my um, uh, my, my favorite memories would, be, would revolve around being able to share meals with him uh, and the uh, camaraderie or fellowship is way, way too strong, but there was an affinity there. there where we, really, we really did get along uh, famously. We got along really, uh, really, really well. Uh, one time, another uh, uh, we were sharing. We were in a little, little place. I think this was in Dallas. We we spoke at a uh, uh, at the Christian Booksellers uh, thing. We were on a panel there, and okay. Christopher and Christopher and a few other of my, my Christian friends and I were uh, in a coffee joint or some some someplace, and we were talking. And I told him that he was still a Christian because because he he'd been baptized in the Church of England and he'd never been excommunicated and. He really ought to have been excommunicated, but that wasn't up to him. He couldn't just announce that he wasn't a Christian. The, the church had to kick him out, and he really needed to do something about that. And uh, and that kind of <laughs> <laughs> took, took him back a couple of, couple, couple of steps. Okay, that, <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, that's funny how he's super nice, and then you're on stage. Christopher Hitchens was a funny guy. I really, out of all the atheists that I've watched, uh, he was the most enjoyable to watch. Uh, you know, obviously, apart from his blasphemous, uh, <laughs> of course, many of the blasphemous things he, he would say. He very, very quick and very, very, very witty, which yeah. is why he got away with murder. So you mm. could, uh, you pin him. You know, if, if this was a wrestling match, he'd be on the mat. Both shoulder blades down, and he would say something uproariously funny, and everybody would laugh as though he had thrown off the argument. Right? And he hadn't done anything. <laughs> he hadn't done anything of the, of the kind. He was. Right. Just, so he had to keep an eye. He had to keep an eye on him all all the time. Right. right. I, well, I thought you handled them very well. Those were great discussions. I, I had a, the pleasure of listening to those a, a while back. Uh, here's another question here uh, by MJ Jackson. That is not Michael Jackson. <laughs> okay, yeah, just yeah. just in case. Uh, Grace and peace, brothers. What books? Would you recommend on biblical epistemology? Oh, oh man, man! Um, <laughs> I would start. Pastorals. Yeah, yeah. Um, did the part of the problem that I have in this whole field is uh, I got what I've, what's going on in my head is an assemblage of many snippets from many different places, so. Uh, there's no one book that I would say this. This is the go-to book on right. on epistemology. On epistemology. Um, so I'm I'm afraid I'm going to come up short on on that. And some of the books that I learned the most from, I would have significant disagreements with at different places. Yeah. So 
if this is slightly off topic from question, but it illustrates the, the point nicely, I think. When I, I one of the first books I read was in the early nineties, and it was called, called Persuasions, and it was a dream of reason meeting unbelief. It was basic intro, intro kind of thing to apologetics evangelism and whatnot. And this was pre-internet, pre-everything like that. And book junkies like like me used to get monthly catalogs, newsprint catalogs of from distributors with with six point eight point font describing all the different books. And uh, there was one, one of them on the East Coast called Great Christian Books. And uh, the 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 fellow there agreed to pick up my book uh, as a as a offering in his, in his catalog. Which at the time was a big deal, big deal for me, and I was really I was whizzed up about it. And so when that catalog came, I I got the catalog and I, I flipped open. I found my book, and he, the, the man running the catalog company, had written the copy for uh, you know written the ad copy for my book, and he said this little book is a a uh, a very fine basic introduction to Ventilian apologetics, and I looked at that and I said it is. It is. <laughs> I think I've read I, persuasions. I, I, that, that was, it was really uh, good. Yeah. Uh, well, I I, <coughs> see, I had not read Van Til at the point. I had not read Van Til. Okay. And I thought, good beef. Are, are uh, you, you trying know, to say? I, are you trying to say you developed presuppositional apologetics simultaneously, but but apart yeah, from uh, yeah, Doctor Van Til? Yeah, yeah, kind of like Leibniz Newton, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, uh, so the the point is, if I didn't learn Van Til. Where did I learn it? Well, I, I um, because so what I did is I or, quick I ordered um, uh, Van Til's Defense of the Faith and, and read it and was greatly relieved. Uh, okay, all right, I don't mind being, you know, I don't mind being being tagged with where Who's I was. This tagged, heretic but, Van Til. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that was a close call, right? Well, well, <clears throat> when after I said okay, I agree with I'm basically in sync with Van Til. Where had I learned this basic prepositional move? Uh, and the answer is, why did he identify my book as presuppositionalism when I hadn't read until at all? Well, I had learned that method of argumentation from C.S. Lewis, uh, particularly his book on miracles. So in the first two or three chapters, he does a demolition job. And this is weird because Lewis was not a presuppositionalist. Right. He would be, uh, I would say that, that Lewis was a mixed bag. If he was talking to uh, non-believers behaving themselves and asking questions, he was an evidentialist. He would use evidences. He would just function like an evidentialist. Uh, John Warwick Montgomery cor corresponded with him and showed him an article, and Lewis wrote back approvingly. You know, So Lewis was happy to sign off on, on evidential arguments. But then when he encountered materialists, atheism. He just ran the most devastating reductio imaginable. You can't think if you're just a mindless concatenation of atoms. You can't even say I'm a mindless concatenation of atoms. That makes too much sense. So that that, that reductio, that demolition job, something I learned from Lewis. So going back to this, um, this question, um, I would say prob probably uh, the I, probably the best place to start on, on all of these questions would be a good intro would be Greg Bond's Always Ready. 
So I think Bonson's always ready, sort of covers the water waterfront. And the, the question of uh, Christian apologetics is boiled down the question of Christian epistemology. You, you can't get to whether Jesus rose from the dead without addressing how do we know what we know. Right. So that, that was that's the, yeah. Always ready is a great great one because uh, the chapters are super short, but it's filled with scripture. I think uh, Doctor Bonson's main goal was to provide that biblical basis, which apparently was missing um, in Van Til's work, um, in the sense that Van Til didn't really engage the, a lot of the text of scripture in his work. He kind of just assumed it, and it was weaved into a lot of his philosophical right. jargon, which you know um, made many accuse him of not being biblical. Yet he was supported. He was suggesting that this was kind of the way to go for for the Christian. If anyone's interested in uh, Christian epistemology, biblical epistemology, there is a book called Debating Christian Religious Epistemology, and Dr. Scott Oliphant has an excellent um, chapter there on covenantal epistemology, which is basically epistemology from a presuppositional perspective. And so I just recently read that a couple of weeks ago. It was really, really good and very much related to some of the things we were talking about just a moment ago with regards to innate knowledge and things like that, general revelation, special revelation. So you want to check out that book, Debating Christian Religious epistemology and check out scott oliphant's uh book there all right thank you very much mj uh we have another question here i guess this one's for me eli will you have william lane craig on the show actually um if you guys remember a couple of episodes back i had uh kevin harris who was uh the guy who interviews dr craig on his reasonable faith podcast and he was uh telling me that he was going to try and hook me up to get dr craig on here so hopefully we will get him on uh sooner rather than later but i know he's a very busy guy so i'll keep you guys informed uh, with regards to um, to that. Okay, let's see. We have a couple more questions here. That one was a tech question. Okay, we don't want to ask you that one because you already have your headphones in. Um, let's see here. Uh, what are your recommendations? That's another same question. Okay, here's a, a point here. Someone's asking, classical apologists sometimes accuse preceptors of confusing ontology with epistemology. Have you heard this before and how do you respond? Uh, um, yeah, I, uh, we've touched on it already, but I would say basically, I would say confusing confusing them is not the same thing. Basically, you can distinguish things without separating them. And and my problem with the modern world is that once once we've distinguished something, we think that we've separated them. We think that this belongs in this box, and this belongs in in this box. I can distinguish easily. A child can distinguish. Height from breadth from depth, okay, but you can't separate them, right? If I if I take a uh, this microphone here and uh, remove all the height from it, I don't have a very 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 flat microphone. I have no microphone. I all I have to do is remove one attribute, and I've removed the other two. That's because these things can be distinguished, but but not separated. The, so I would say that uh, ontology and epistemology can be distinguished, but not separated. All right. So um, if uh, a knower can't know unless God created him so that, that he can know, ontology, right? And, uh, unless God created him, unless, unless God is there and created the world, no knower can know anything. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, that's that is an ontological claim, but it's also relevant to epistemology. All right, the, I can't, can't sure. know anything. I can't know anything unless I'm, I'm created. 
Right. Right. And so that's what I'm. So what the presuppositionalist list is doing is saying, what are what are the pre what are the presuppositions of me being here at all? That's on that's ontology, and and what are the presuppositions for me being here at all and being able to know something? Right. What what kind of universe does it have to be in order for me to know anything at all? And that's a that's epistemology all the way down. Okay. Right. But it bleeds into ontology. I I can't I, I can't pursue epistemology without at some point coming to the creator God. God. As soon as I get to the creator God, God that ontology, which, which means that these subjects can be distinguished but never separated. Mm. Okay. I hope that answers um, the question. I do address this more specifically in my response to Dr. Richard Howe's uh, interview on capturing Christianity. You can check that out on the Revealed Apologetics YouTube page. Um, and I address that and the application of presuppositionalism to other religious perspectives as whether um, I think the point came up um, that uh, when we argue transcendentally by the impossibility of the contrary, um, who's to stop someone from assuming the Muslim God? You know, you can you can just remove the Christian God and replace uh, replace the argument with any other God, and it works the same. So the critic says, and um, I demonstrate that that's not the case as well. So uh, those both of those questions are answered in more depth in another video. Um, so hopefully, what Doctor, uh, I mean uh, Pastor Wilson has just expressed here is helpful as well. We have another question here. When witnessing, do you have to present the fact that the person you are speaking to knows God, or can you assume that for yourself and not speak about it when either witnessing or when debating yeah yeah I, I assume it for myself so when i'm talking to someone i don't uh, i don't say say hey hey buddy you know everything every, you know that everything i'm saying is true and why don't you just come along quietly that is not, not going to, that's that's not going to persuade anybody it, it, it may well be true but it's just obnoxious it's just an obnoxious way, way of proceeding like licking your finger and going up to touch his eyeball. Um, the fact that he knows the fact that he knows God, and he knows God at a foundational level of his being, being is something that he is not going to bring out or allow to be brought out until, until he trusts you. Hmm. And he's not, he's not going to trust you unless it's clear to him, him that you love him. Uh, so uh, basically, I when when I'm speaking to someone. I assume that he knows God without telling him in a taunting way that he knows God. Now, when I say, say that he knows God, I've got to qualify this also, because a non-believer can know, know, the more a non-believer knows the true attributes of God, the more he hates it. So the one thing a non-believer cannot do is know God and love God. A a uh, non-believer can love God and not know anything about Him. <laughs> you know, you know let, let's say a sweet bourbon Mormon housewife who just loves Jesus. But then, then if you were to ask her what her definition of Jesus was, it would be quickly apparent that she's, she's loving a construct of her imagination, which is what makes the love possible. All right? So she can love and not know, or the non-believer can know and not love. Hmm. So they, um, you've got you're going to get in a conversation with the non-believer you're witnessing to. They're going to get to a to a tipping point where 
they're going to have to open up with what they're really afraid of or what, what they're really running from. And, and when that starts to happen, you're at the point where you're, you're not that far from praying with them or leading them, leading them to Christ. And you've got, got to be, you know, the fisherman doesn't yank on the line at that point. You, you just have to uh, be loving and tender and thoughtful. But you assume, you know the whole time that when they say, oh, I, don't, I have no idea whether God exists. You know that that's a lie. Right? You don't say, you don't sure. tell them that's a lie, uh, um, but you might, if depending on how well you knew them and, and how far along you were, <laughs> that, that's right. you know, all, all of those things. But you, I, I would not ever do that right out of the starting blocks. Right. And, and, and not doing that is not working against the presuppositional method because at the popular understanding, people think like, well, presuppositionalists just go out there and say, you know, God, stop lying to yourself. And that's it. How arrogant. And that's why a lot of people call presuppositionalists arrogant. It's for that very point is that we're just telling the unbeliever, you know, God, and you're just suppressing it. And that's true, like you said, but you don't have to go out and say it. It's not because we're not honoring God's word. It's just you want to use strategy when you're talking to someone. You want to reach someone. So there are certain ways you go about that that you want to consider before you start making various applications. All right. Someone wanted to give a shout out to their favorite book, their favorite Doug Wilson book. He's, uh, Brett says, my favorite Doug Wilson book is Persuasions. Uh, there's a character trying to get to the city based on his own righteous, uh, righteous works. The evangelist commends him and tells him good luck because no one has done it on their own. The character asks if the city is full and how. Evangelist confirms and says, what a man can't do for himself may still be done for him. Nice. Persuasions is an excellent book, and I believe can be downloaded on Kindle as well. Uh, it's probably going for a pretty nice price at this point. Um, here's an interesting question here by uh, Lagos Ministries. Hello, brother. Can you ask Pastor Wilson? Okay, Pastor Wilson is for you. How can you deal with doctrine matters or doctrinal matters in a country where there is no room for Reformed theology as Middle Eastern countries? A follower from Jordan. So one of the things I would do is, uh, in that situation, is I would avail yourself, as, as you have just now done, of theological blessings where, where you can um, get nourishment and encouragement and blessing from outside your, your environment. environment. And I would encourage you to start with, with eschatology. Um, so if, if you're in Jordan right now, you need to know that there a day is coming when Jordan will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Hmm. And uh, so I would start with, with the, I would, if, you, if you're isolated and lonesome that way, I would use technological means, electronic communication, uh, chat groups, uh, books, that sort of thing, uh, to, to refurbish or strengthen your doctrinal understanding. But I would start with the doctrines that are the most refreshing and encouraging, um, like the doctrines of grace and uh, eschatology is where I would start. Mm. All right. Thank you. Um, this one's pertaining more to our main topic, the biblical foundations for presuppositionalism. Uh, 
I don't know how to pronounce his name, so I do apologize. <laughs> okay. Uh, he says, uh, he or she, I'm not sure. Uh, many use Psalm 19 to aid their classical evidential approach. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. How would you answer them according to the text? According to that text, um, I have it here. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And then, of course, it goes on to various other aspects of creation. How do classicalists yeah. use this passage, and how would you understand it from a presuppositional perspective? Well, class, classical evidentialists would say, "See, you've got natural revelation in the first in this part of that psalm," and would say, "Amen." Yeah, that's, that's uh, the heavens do declare the glory of God. They don't, don't. The heavens don't declare God's indignity. They don't, don't declare. Anything shameful about God, they declare God's glory. So I don't. Uh, this goes back to Mom and her brownies, right? It's when you get to the second half of Psalm 19 that you get to the note: "The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul." And and it, that's a wonderful poem because you've got not only do you have two halves of the poem, where you've got natural revelation and you have special revelation, the law of the law of the Lord being perfect, converting the soul, but the poetic dice is um, the sun comes like a, a bridegroom out of his chamber, chamber, ready to run the race. Like the sun illuminates absolutely everything. And then it moves seamlessly into this hymn of praise to the law of God. So what they're saying is that these, these, these two things, not unlike, they come from the same God. The, the one who, who reveals himself in the first part, part communicates by means of... Uh, propositions in the second part. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And so these two things are, uh, God wrote two books, one author, two books, and we, we I distinguish them, but I absolutely refuse to separate them. I want natural revelation and special revelation to be as conjoined in our thinking as they are conjoined in, in Psalm 19. Hmm. Psalm 19 doesn't end with the sun coming out of his chamber. Psalm 19 moves on into the glories of special, special revelation. Mm. All right, I'm going to keep going with the questions, if that's okay, because some of them are biblical, uh, based on understanding of biblical text, so that just covers our, our topic. And um, we are sure. running uh, to our closing time, so I'm just going to run with the questions so that the listeners uh, can get their, their questions answered, and I'm glad they're asking a lot of these Bible-based questions here. Here's a, a question from Dylan. Uh, does Acts 17.31 suggest that God has provided the same type of evidence in the resurrection as he has in creation in that both both leave men without excuse for unbelief? And uh, Psalm, I'm sorry, Acts 17.31 says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How would you address that? Yeah, um, I, I think that that's a very good question uh, because you'll notice this in, in classical apologetics, in classical apologetics, you have a tendency to want to prove the resurrection. Mm. Okay, let's prove that the resurrection had happened. In biblical apologetics, the resurrection is proof. Right? It's... Uh, and you, you just have that in Acts 17.31. The fact that Jesus came back from the dead is the proof of a number of things. So Jesus is declared in Romans 1.4. 1, 1, Jesus is, is declared with power 
to be the Son of God by his resurrection from, from the dead. His resurrection declares who he is. His resurrection declares in Acts 17.31 that he's going to be the judge of the whole uh, world. And God has given the whole world assurance of this by raising Jesus from, from the dead. So uh, the resurrection is not the thing that needs to be proven. The resurrection is the th thing that proves things. Right. So I, I, I go out as a preacher of the gospel. I, I go out to declare and preach the resurrection of the, of the dead as a proof of what God's going to do. Not as the thing is not it's, it's not the topic for discussion. Now, now I don't say that if if someone were to have a debate with someone over whether Jesus rose from the dead, I'm not saying it's sinful to participate in a, a debate right. with that as a topic. But I do think it's a problem when we forget the resurrection is is God's mighty proof. Mm. Okay. Here's a more uh, pastoral sort of question. Uh, this person asks, I'm convinced that God has called me to be a pastor. What's the first thing I should do? <laughs> Go on. They're, they're, the next thing they're going to do is going to be based on your answer here. So no pressure. I mean, you should go lie down until the feeling goes away. <laughs> um, uh, so basically, I would say that if you want to be a pastor, um, the, the old joke down south that says that uh, a hot sun and a slow mule has been the cause of many a call to the mystery. Right. <laughs> there I are, love the way you were. You were things so interestingly. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of people who who are interested in you know, big fat books and an indoor jo job with no heavy lifting and that sort okay. of thing. Um, so the first thing I would do, do is check your motives. Okay, check your motives. Do you want? Why do you want to be a pastor? If you want to be a pastor. Because you love your theology nerd and you love fucking theology with other theology nerds, that's not what you're gonna. It's not what you're gonna wind up doing, right? Uh, when you're a pastor, you're going, you're going to uh, be helping people put their lives back together. People who didn't give a rip about the theology and they should have, and that's why their life is a mess. Um, mm. So you're going to be um, doing a lot of things that require. Sacrifice, giving yourself away, and so I would test yourself by giving yourself away. You know, uh, PGA O'Rourke said that everybody wants to save the world, but nobody will help mom with the dishes. Well, <laughs> um, you're like a walking it, fortune cookie, is? <laughs> that was a good one. So, uh, what I would say is that if you want to be a pastor. Start looking for places to serve in your local church. Uh, look, look for jobs that other people don't want to do. Look, look for people that other people don't want to spend time with. Um, because it, it, when you become a pastor, you'll be spending time with people that other, that other people don't want to spend time with. Right? That's what that's what you're actually aspiring to. Um, and 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 Jesus says that if you want to, be, want to become great in the kingdom, you've he who wants to be, become great has to become servant of all. So I would I would encourage, encourage you to, yeah. uh, in your local church, practice giving yourself away in that way. And I would say that depending on where you are, get a really good 
liberal arts education, undergraduate undergraduate education, uh, and build a seminary education on top of that. Very good. Um, and uh, we have another question. But are you okay with these questions here? Are you, are you oh yeah, still I'm, good to go. Yeah, I'm still good. Yeah, you don't you don't feel like you're okay. Good. All right. So so Jared has a question here. Um, how or what advice could you give me uh, to getting into apologetics ministry? So, um, I I would say this is this is going to seem again pretty simplistic. I wouldn't be a, if you said how how do I uh, get into fishing. Well, you get a fishing boat and you go where the fish are. You 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 and you don't take the boat out on the lake and then wait for the fish to jump. Um, they sometimes do that, but it's it's pretty rare. Uh, what what you want to do is go where the if you want to interact with non-believers, go where non-believers are, are, and uh and, and be content with not being very good at it. Uh, you know initially. So this is one of the, um, if you, you want to learn street, what I would call street-level apologetics, you know, how to, how to feed questions, how to answer questions, I would go to, I do things like go to, go to a nearby college campus and do some open-air preaching. Right. Do, you want to, do you want to learn how to field hot questions? Well, that's, the, <laughs> that's, how, you're going to, that's how you're going to get hot questions thrown at you is if you could go do open air preaching or if you have literature uh let's say you have literature on on the lds church outside an lds center somebody's going to come out and talk to you hmm. okay or if you live, live in a, a city where there's some jw's standing on the you know standing on the sidewalk handing out their, their literature you go to them some literature you're, you're going to find yourself in conversations. And when you're in this conversation, you know, interact with them, with them and then go home and watch the game. Just go over mine and say, how did, how did I get painted into a corner? That seemed fruitless. Or I, you know, you're going to find yourself uh, uh, doing a trial and error thing. If you've got a friend that you can take with you, so someone can help you view game film. I thought you got, got stalled out on this point here, or I, or I, th I thought that the argument became fruitless at this, this point. Uh, so, uh, you know, and I, I, this is how I learned was just by doing it. And you're doing it, you're going to be doing a bunch of it wrong. So uh, <laughs> when, when I was in the Navy, I, I, so I was on the first submarine I was on for about a year and a half. And the, for the first nine months I was on there, I grew up in a family that loved debate and back and forth. And so for me, it was a, almost like entertainment. It was like, like a, uh, it wasn't a sad time. For some people, arguments remind them of calls, which make them sad because of a dysfunctional home. But for me, I had a very godly, ha happy home and arguments just, I just loved to, I, I just loved to argue. And so I would go at it with these sales, you know, one at a time or, time or a bunch at a time. And I would just back and forth. And my, I was talking about nine months of that. I was talking to my dad on the phone. And I said, you know, it's coming to Christ here. I don't know, you know, what's the deal? And my dad quote verse to me out of the pastorals uh, in the King's Version of the Bible. 
It says, avoid foolish and unlearned arguments, for they, they do gender strife, and the servant of the Lord does not strive. So you've got to go where the people are there who will talk with you, who will argue with you. You have to engage, and you have to debate with them, but you have to do it without getting sucked into foolish and unlearned arguments or endless genealogies. And that's why it's good to have a friend along who can say, that's fruitful. That line of discussion was fruitful. This other line of discussion, I, I, I don't think it's going to, I think that's fruitful at all. Hmm. And I like what you said there. We, you have to be okay with messing up too. I mean, uh, it's easy to yeah. kind of catch the, the the YouTube videos of like the cool one-liners that some famous apologist did, but there was a lot of practice and a lot of messing up and then getting things right later that came before all of that nice stuff that gets slapped onto YouTube. Yeah. Uh, so right. uh, that, that's a good same thing with with the whole issue of preaching. People was like, I want to be a pastor because they've maybe they they listen to your sermons and they're been inspired by the work that you're doing or or someone else, and uh, you know. Being a pastor is not all glitz and glam and just preaching all day long. I mean, there's a lot of things that you are doing besides a video, like you know, an interview like this. That's just really just being involved with your congregation that people don't really see. They just hear about. Right. right. That's so, true. This question comes from Julio on a scale from one to ten. I love these kind of questions. How post mill are you, Doug? <laughs> I, was, I mean, like really, like you're post, we, we know you're post mill, but how post -mill. Much are you? <laughs> I would say twelve. <laughs> it's okay. Very good, very good. All right, um, I'm going to ask one more question here, um, and I do apologize if I missed anyone's question. I do want to respect uh, Pastor Doug's time, um, and I'm not sure how the audio is still sounding to a lot of people out there. I did hear that people were were finding that it was okay, but I don't want to uh, push the limits here. So Dylan has a question here. Um, if God has provided, one, the assurance of his existence in creation, two, the assurance of the gospel through the resurrection, what exactly do we seek to prove slash expose in our apologetic methods? That's, that's an outstanding question. I say the thing that we're trying to accomplish in our apologetic method is dismantle the denials of that assurance. Hmm. Okay, so men are assured of God's existence through the creation. They're assured of the gospel through the resurrection. But because they're sinners and because they're still, still unregenerate, they want to deny in the teeth of the evidence these things. And it's our ta task to dismantle that denial. Our, mm. our job is take that denial or that ability to deny away. Okay, and just leave them naked before the question mm. that's that, that's the task of apologetics mm, very good all right um oh ooh, this one's a good one i said last one but this one's a good one you mind one more okay. one more i promise this is the last I one, one. Okay. One. This is, it, okay i think i think it's a good one it's an important one so so do you have any advice for keeping your cool during apologetic encounters that's really difficult asking a person who did not grow up in an environment like you did i.e a family who enjoyed happy debate around the dinner table so how does someone keep their cool in the context of apologetic encounters, yeah, yeah. So, I one of the the I think, I think the fundamental thing is this: is recognizing that if you're losing, if you lose your cool, or if you have enough of self awareness to know that you're about five minutes away from losing your cool, <laughs> that mean, means that you are entering into disqualified territory. Hmm. You. You, you can't grab the football and run down the sidelines behind the benches. 
you're out of bounds. You that's not how this thing goes. That's not the those aren't the rules of the game. So when you are dealing when we deal with the non-believer, it says Paul says again in Timothy that we should have, we have to answer be prepared to answer them gently, if peradventure God would grant them repentance and turn turn them from uh, the the uh, the course they're on. So my my, my keeping it together is an essential part of my qualification to be doing what I'm doing. So if, if I'm if I'm convinced that I'm about to lose my, my cool, what I should do is say, look, sorry, I, I've uh, this conversation has been great, but I have to come back next week. You know, I have to go. You don't have to tell anybody why you're going to go. But if you're going to lose your cool. <laughs> I got to go because I'm about to wring your neck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really, I really have to go. And and if that happens every time, then maybe you're not cut out to be a ecologist, because uh, the 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 qualification uh, in this is brother to brother. But in Galatians six one, if it was overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. If that's true, brother to brother, how much more more would it be true? Of talking to a non-believer, so I th- I think it's absolutely rock bottom, fundamental, fundamentally necessary uh, to learn how to keep your cool, and and part of that is learning cultivate a sense of humor, learning uh, learning some uh, uh, deflection things that you can say hey, that would diffuse the situation. Uh, sometimes you lose your cool because the other guy is in the process of starting to lose his. Right. 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 Um, and so you want to, want to be, be able to ramp down. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Pastor uh, Pastor Doug and uh, Pastor Doug, Pastor Wilson. Doug Wilson. I'm just going to call you Doug Wilson. Thank yeah. you so much for your time. People, people call Pastor Doug out here all the time. So that's, okay. That's so, so Pastor Doug, um, thank you so much yeah. for your time. Um, and I know you're really busy. So this was um, this is really a blessing for those who are listening. I do. Uh, I'm getting some comments in a different uh stream than the than the the chat area here people are really enjoying it so thank you so much for coming on um for those of you guys who are following the channel um on the 29th i'm having jeff durbin and then i'll be reeling out some uh interviews in close proximity not because i do that on purpose i just do these interviews based on the on the uh those that i'm interviewing their own schedule so i wanted to be respectful for that but i know you guys are enjoying the content if you have not subscribed to the revealed apologetics youtube channel then you are living evidence of total depravity you need to go to youtube and you need to click subscribe and uh you know be aware of what is going on at revealed apologetics um so that you can uh get your hands or your eyes or your view your view on the helpful information that's on that channel well uh once again this has been another episode of revealed apologetics i'm your host elias ayala if you have any questions you can reveal you could uh um email me at revealed apologetics at gmail.com once again thank you so much pastor doug wilson and we are done thank thank you so much great to know you Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.